I think Australians are better positioned to understand this than just about anybody else. I mean, you've got the largest living structure on Earth, the Great Barrier Reef, located a few kilometers offshore. It's half as living as it was two years ago. I mean, what more do you guys want? Hi, I'm Phil Stubbs, and you're listening to The Environment Show. The voice you just heard was Bill McKibben. McKibben's been described as the lion of the climate movement. He started many years ago, 30 years ago, in fact, by writing a book on climate change called The End of Nature. That book in 1989 was the first to take the science of global warming and explain it to a general audience. Bill has gone on to write many more books on climate, and he is certainly, I think, one of the best writers on the planet when it comes to this issue. But Bill's done more than just write. He also founded 350.org to campaign globally for climate action. And he's played a key role in kickstarting the divestment movement, which has put pressure on the funding of fossil fuel projects. I started my interview with him by asking about the fossil fuel industry and what they have in store for the earth. One of the most worrying things that you speak about is the amount of fossil fuels still on the ground. We're already in trouble with the global warming we've got right now. But if the fossil fuel companies burn, what else there is to go? Um, instead of one or two degrees, we could be way higher. So I wonder if you can tell a listener about that and what we can do to stop it happening. Sure. The question is just right because it reminds us that we're still near the beginning of climate change. We've gone a very long way. We've raised the temperature one degree. That's melted half the Arctic. That's destroyed half the Great Barrier Reef. But if we do what the fossil fuel companies want to do, if we burn the reserves they currently have on their books, we'll go way past the two-degree target set as the absolute red line by the countries of the world. The fossil fuel industry has five times as much carbon in its reserves as necessary to take us past that two-degree mark. The world that they're aiming for is a world that's three, four, five degrees warmer than the one we're in right now. That is a world that's endlessly warmer than, you know, since long before the beginning of primate evolution. A world where we cannot have civilizations anything like the ones we're used to having. So we have to rewrite that story. We have to rewrite those business plans. Hence, for instance, this big divestment movement. Hence, the strong efforts to stop new fossil fuel projects like Adani or like the pipelines out of the tar sands in Canada or like fracking for gas all over the planet. That's why these efforts are so important because otherwise there's no way to make the maths of climate change work. And I wonder if you could just tell us a, a little bit about what happened in New York City with them divesting their funds, um, their pension funds, but also suing the five oil companies. New York's decision to divest its holdings was important because, uh, you know, A, it's a lot of money. They've got $200 billion in pension funds. B, it's smart money. They're right next to Wall Street. And C, as you point out, they were aggressive. They also announced that they were suing the fossil fuel industry, really suing them because the fossil fuel industry, it turns out, knew everything there was to know about climate change and just lied about it. New York, I think, quite rightly says, we spent $20 billion trying to deal with climate change. That's not our fault. That's your fault. Uh, we'd like our money. Uh, it's a good reminder that in a world run at the moment by the Trumps and the Turnbulls, we need 
the people who are progressive to act aggressive. We need them to really take on this fight, not just say the right words. And the other thing that I wonder about sometimes too, Bill, is that fossil fuels is baked into so much of the way we live, like the way our cities are designed and our food production. So how are we going to make those big structural changes? It's going to take more than just switching to renewable energy, isn't it? Yes, it is. The good news is, and I think this is a shift from even five years ago, renewable energy is getting so cheap so fast that the transition is not going to be as traumatic as I think some of us thought it would be some years ago. I mean, we really could electrify most of the things we do and provide most of the electricity from the sun and the wind. But there are things that are going to shift. We need to figure out how to grow food closer to home. There are a lot of things that we can do that in the end will produce not only less emissions, but more elegant connected communities which uh, my sense from around the world is what people value most of all in the end anyway. One of the frustrations I have, Bill, is that the missed opportunity because in making this kind of big, these big changes to improve the environment rather than being a burden, it, it could be a great opportunity to improve people's quality of life as well as doing what we can for the planet. What would you say? Absolutely. About that? I wrote a book once called Deep Economy the thesis of which was that if we actually cared about human happiness and what we understand about it now, we'd make an entirely different set of decisions. So for instance, my country, and I think to a large degree Australia, spent most of its great wealth in the post-war period on the project of building bigger houses farther apart from each other. That was an environmental problem because you have to use a lot of energy to heat and cool and move between them, but it was a human problem too because people ran into each other less. The average American has half as many close friends as the average American 50 years ago. For a socially evolved primate, that's a big loss. You know, there's not enough iPhones in the world to make up for that. And so as we think about how to deal with the problems that we're encountering. One of the good upsides is we can think about how to deal with them in ways that are deeply satisfying. So Bill, you said in your article, A World at War, that Pearl Harbor was like a wake-up call for your country, uh, not only to take what was happening in the rest of the world seriously, but also for the US to mobilise, to retool its factories and industries, to, to deal with the threats at that time. I wonder if we're going to need a wake-up call on climate and you know, what is that wake-up call going to be? That's a very good question. I just wrote a piece for The New Yorker last week. I was in Hiroshima and sort of reflecting on the differences between the nuclear and the climate predicaments. They're the two existential threats that the planet has ever faced. But one of them had this dramatic moment. Every human being can imagine that mushroom cloud and that incinerated city. And so we've worked pretty hard uh, as a world to keep that from happening. Um, not perfectly, but I mean, even Donald Trump in his small, angry reaction nodule perched atop his neck understands at some level that denuclearization, as he keeps saying, is a good idea. The explosion of a billion pistons inside a billion cylinders every minute of every day 
hasn't been enough to get our attention in the same fashion. But it's doing damage on the same scale, maybe larger. And so it's a real test of the human imagination. Can we come to grips with this phenomenon absent? Uh, we're not going to have a Hiroshima moment, you know, in quite the same way. I think Australians are better positioned to understand this than just about anybody else. I mean, you've got the largest living structure on Earth, the Great Barrier Reef, located a few kilometers offshore. It's half as living as it was two years ago. I mean, what more do you guys want? You know, I mean, it's like this is this is as close to a Pearl Harbor experience as you're going to get. Take it seriously. My thanks to Bill McKibben. You can find out a lot more about Bill and his work on our website at environmentshow.com. We've collected the best of his articles, books and talks, as well as links to his latest campaign on climate. You've been listening to The Environment Show. Stay tuned to another in our series of interviews with the world's environmental leaders. I'm Phil Stubbs.